A small group of famous musicians once wrote, We're going down, down, down to Lover's Lane. That's where she drives, drives, drives me insane. However, what this 80s hairband forgot to mention is the absolute and sheer terror you feel running down Lover's Lane after your boyfriend of three weeks gets shot twice in the head by whom locals call the Moonlight Phantom. But then again, that probably wouldn't sell any records. So tonight, armed with recently released FBI documents and dressed in our finest zoot suits, we head down to Little Old Texarkana where we try to make out why a sex-crazed maniacal killer is stalking an entire town. Thank you for being here amongst this COVID-19 outbreak. I want to give a big shout out to two new Tacos Primos that came in. Yay! All right. First, we got Stacy from Texas. Yo, Stace. And remember, uh, Nicole, who joined last week, was also from the Texas. That's mm. right. From Tyler, Texas, which, Nicole, I have a little treat for you tonight. <gasps> Is this a geography question? I just gave the location away. (laughs) You said the answer? God damn. Yes. Thank you. Tallow, Texas is the answer. Also, a big shout out to Haley from Florida. Hey, Haley. Hey, 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 Haley. And Stacey, I sent out your swag today. Haley's yours going out tomorrow. And Haley, we hope to uh, to still make it. If you listen to this today. True. We we hope to uh, make it down there to Florida sometime soon. We were going to be in Orlando. Date TBD on that rescheduling, so be sure to check it out. Tacos mm-hmm. come free. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys knew that, but um, if you're a Tacos Primo, you get into the shows for free. So be sure to just let us know. And we'll give you coming. two passes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Own us. The hint was Phantom. So, Nicole, mm-hmm. where are we going? Who are we killing? Wait, Jen, tell us about our drink tonight. Um, So the hint was Phantom. It, the name of the drink is Gold Phantom. Um, it's made with Hennessy, pineapple juice, honey, a pinch of salt, and lemon juice. I know what it kind of t- tastes like. There's something, like when I first take a sip, it has like a flavor of tequila to me. Oh, yeah? And I don't like it at first, but then I don't hate it. I don't know. This is a weird one. It's ki- It's kind of like a hot toddy, except instead of... Um, tea, it's pineapple juice. Surprise shots, surprise shots. We don't know what they are, because they're a surprise. What was that? Oh, you picked out a shot, didn't you? I, I, I was like, I was like, this does not resemble anything that's in our liquor cabinet. <laughs> I was like, is that gin? Is that lemon? It, it was like lemon and watermelon? Vodka? That is 99 watermelons, vodka, 49% alcohol. That was good. For volume. That was really good. Yeah, I know. All right. So today is Monday and it feels like the world is standing still, but I've got a great story for you guys and I'm really excited about this one. We're going to Texarkana. Ooh. Why do they call it Texarkana there, Nicole? Because that is where like the the... The nipple? Texas no. meets Arkansas. She get, she got it. I was trying to say the panhandle. Does Arkansas part. have a panhandle? I thought that was Oklahoma. So, Oh, yeah, you're right. 
Texarkana is the city. It's the twin cities between Texas and Arkansas. There's actually a really cool spot called the, uh, I think it's called the Four States mm-hmm. Amusement uh, Park. And it's between literally borders. It's right in the dab of all four states. All right. We're starting off tonight on February 22nd, 1946. Mary Jean Larry, okay, she's a 19-year-old. She's with her boyfriend, Jimmy Hollis. Now, I'm starting this story out at the very beginning. I usually don't do that. I usually go from probably the most brutal murder, and then I kind of go back to the beginning and, and show you how it evolved to where the killers got where he is now and developed his M- M- and developed his MO. But tonight, I'm going to start at the very beginning from when the killer actually started out. So the first one isn't even a killing. These two, this couple actually survived. They're leaving a movie. Now they dropped off another couple. So this is 1946. They're in their, you know, hot rod or whatever. They leave the movie. They just saw a movie. And if you want to read this, this is uh, from the paper Tyler, Texas Morning Telegraph, Saturday, May 11th, 1946. That's for you, Nicole. Um, you got to tell us there in Tyler, Texas, if that newspaper is still a newspaper. I really doubt it is, but go ahead. She and Hollis, accompanied by another couple, had attended a movie. They had taken the other couple home first and had stopped beside the road. It's late at night. You just got done with a movie. You got a 19-year-old. She's looking hot to trot. Mm-hmm. And this is the time period of the bush. So you basically drive the car into the bush. <laughs> <laughs> you drive the car into the bush and you park on Richmond Road. You're in the car and you're doing the whoopty doopty. You're making out. <laughs> the, the okay, you just dropped your friends off. You're making out and a guy approaches, shining a flashlight through the window. And it's a man outside. You can tell by his voice. He's got a scruffy, grumpy voice, kind of like, yeah. But you can't see his face because what you think. It looks like he's wearing a pillowcase. Hmm. Okay, if you want to take a look at this picture right here, this is basically what the guy looks like. Oh, well, that so, seems like it came from a horror movie. So it looks like a pillowcase, looks, right? Yeah. Or like the, an executioner. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure it was a pillowcase with the eyes cut out and then the mouth cut out. This is actually from a horror movie. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm bringing that up in a second. They actually made this into a horror movie. Oh. Yeah, it, and some other stuff as well, including a video game, which is like the first ever to do this. All right. He's shining the flashlight through the window. He tells Jimmy to get out of the car. And he says, quote, this is from what Jimmy says. Remember, he survived this. I don't want to kill you, fella. So you do what I say. And then the man orders Jimmy to take off, quote, Take off your goddamn britches. A man walked up. He wore a white mask over his head with cutout places for his eyes and mouth. He told Jimmy that he didn't want to kill him and to do as he was told. He told Jimmy to take off his pants. After Jimmy had taken off his trousers, the man hit him twice on the head. Well, that's weird. Why is he telling the guy to take off his pants? Okay, so here's what happened. He tells him to take off off them goddamn britches and... Because he's going to rob him. So basically, he oh. has the gun up, you know, his little pistol. And he's like, he's like, take off them goddamn britches. He's pointing the pistol. He does. He kind of kicks him over, you know, with his foot. He's sitting there in his old whitey tighties. 
and the guy still pointing a pistol at Jimmy starts going through his pockets looking for anything. Hmm. You know, Wouldn't but this has been easier to be like, give me your wallet. I feel like asking him to take off his pants is an awfully long process. Yeah, but at the same time, it kind of distorts like like your your brain processing in the middle. And he's like, instead of trying to focus on what the guy looks like, mm. you know, he's like, oh, I don't know. I was taking oh, off I my pants. Yeah. I couldn't. You That's know, a good point. And then you can't get away as fast either because you have to get your pants and, and all that. You're distracted. It's a really good point. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a better way to rob him, though, because if you take off your pants and kick him over to him. Because as you'll see, this guy's not very big. Like they clocked this guy at like five eight, which is kind of big, but he was like I think it said like 145, 150 pounds. Oh, tiny. And that's not very big. No, that's small. You know, and you got this twenty five year old that may be even bigger. I mean, you do have a pistol, but it's like you don't want to take too many chances here. Everyone right? in Texas has a pistol. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe he <laughs> yeah. asked him to take off his pants, so if he reached into his wa in his pants, like maybe he had a gun. So he said, take off your pants. I don't know, maybe. But all Jimmy hears next is a loud noise. And he says that he got shot. He thinks he got shot. But what really happened is this man, this guy that's robbing them, takes his pistol and pistol whips him. And that loud noise is his skull fracturing. Oh. Because you can hear it inside your head if you don't die automatically. You're, it's basically your skull just a... And that's in your head with your ears. So you're like the loudest noise ever. You think you just got blown up. It's like, you know what I'm saying? Your skull just tears itself to pieces. Did I ever tell you guys the story about the time my dad got pistol whipped? That's a story no. for another time. Yeah. It's for a story for another Jeez. time. Jeez. That's quite the injury, though. His skull is now completely fractured. Now, the guy is looking for money or whatever he's looking for in the pants he doesn't find any so guess what he turns to mary mm. okay and this is what happens he knocked me to the ground but i managed to get up as i ran i could hear jimmy groaning the man was beating and stomping him the masked man overtook her and struck her to the ground again then she described the brutal assault made on her she said he did not rape her but that he abused her terribly Go ahead and kill me, she begged him that night. She hmm. actually takes off running. Now, this is what she says that he told him. It was probably miscommunication, but she thinks that he told him to just run, to just get out of here. So she starts running, you know, mm. that's what she says. And then he chases her because now Jimmy's on the ground. He's just been stomped in his head like you see there. You know, um, as I ran, I could hear Jimmy groaning. The man was beating and stomping him. So now she's running for her life. This guy, th this phantom, we'll call him, runs and chases her, knocks her to the ground and then sexually assaults her. But you said he doesn't rape her. Well, that so it said then she described the brutal assault made on her. She said he did not rape her, but abused her terribly. He actually takes the barrel of that pistol mm -mm. and just mm -mm. goes right up there he with rapes the pistol. her with a pistol yeah he rapes her with a pistol yeah and and that's interesting to point out too because this is the first time that we see this guy this is definitely his first time okay hmm. because they get more brutal and he actually starts raping, raping. the victims but it's kind of like he doesn't really know what to do so he's going to do this type of thing and the mm. fact that he didn't shoot any of these kids, you know, 
he probably thought Jimmy was going to die or maybe not. I don't know. But he didn't go back and kill him or whatever. He maybe didn't think about it enough. Like he didn't maybe didn't think he needed to go that far. Yeah. And in the 40s, you don't have to worry about, you know, someone Mm. figuring out who you are if you're wearing a mask over your head and Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as DNA yet. Mm hmm. Hysterical, the girl ran to a nearby house and found a ride to Texarkana. She told Sheriff that she thought the attacker was a black man, though she could not see him in the night. He talked like a black man, she said. His voice keeps ringing in my ears. Hollis was taken in town by another motorist, and while he lay in the hospital near death, he told officers he believed the assailant was a white man. He could not see the man's features because of the mask, the darkness of the night, but his impression was that the man was white. Hmm, interesting. He wasn't wearing gloves while he, why, like, they weren't really worried, that worried about fingerprints back then, I guess. No, either. they were. In fact, they have, not on this particular assault, but they do have, a, um, they do have some fingerprints of this guy. So these guys actually survived. Both Mary and Jimmy survived this whole attack. Now, this is his first one. Now, the reason I'm doing this story, this is the Texarkana Phantom Killer. He's also been known as the Moonlight Phantom Hmm. Killer. Hmm. So basically, that is the uh, rendition of what he would look like. Now, a lot of people say that he was the Zodiac Killer. I haven't done that story yet, but I can tell you right now, if the Zodiac Killer wasn't a good shot, then it's not him. Because this guy was an expert shot, as you'll see. Hmm. He was a very, very... He he was a sharpshooter, no doubt about uh, it. I was going to say, perhaps Plus, military background? The reason I decided to do the Phantom Moonlight Slayer tonight is because of this name. article right here. If you want to read this. It's a cool name. Um, this is actually Texas's most infamous unsolved murder that oh. they, they have in their... You know, in their list of unsolved murders. No one knows who did this. Texas is a big state. They got even, a lot. Even though that we have a even though we have a pretty good idea of who it is, we don't actually know for sure. So if you want to read this, this is from February seventh, twenty twenty. That was a few months ago. Oh. FBI releases archive on Texarkana's Phantom Killer. Over 1,000 pages available online. Whoa. Whoa, guys. This is what you can be doing during your quarantine. Let's solve this murder. Uh, I think this murder is already solved. I, oh. So I, All right, JK. What I did with that. this episode is I, I didn't look at any other documentaries. I didn't read any books. I simply wanted to... Follow the thousand pages provided from the FBI and map out the story from there. And that's what I did. I kind of felt like an FBI agent for a little bit. And there's like fingerprints and everything. So it's not all just a thousand pages of text. It's a thousand pages of everything. And it's not even organized very well. It's not even organized at all, to be honest. So if you if you really want to look at it, you can get it from the FBI website. And I'll put a link to it on talkmurder.com. Obviously, but it's pretty interesting because you actually see the FBI and you, you see their communication hmm. like back and forth. And a lot of it is like memorandums, which kind of drive me crazy. It's like the FBI sends this to the Texas Rangers. Did you get my fingerprint that I sent? And then the Rangers send another message. No. Did you send it priority mail or whatever? Hmm. So it's a lot of that shit. You know, it's a lot yeah. of back and forth kind of snail mail messages and faxes hmm. and stuff like that. 
But you do get a sense of how the FBI functions when you're reading this. You can kind of see their writing style and everything else. And even um, J. Eggard Hoover, the, you know, FBI Mm -hmm. freaking director and the one that started the whole damn thing, he actually writes in about this murder several times to to his staff. It's really cool cool. to see. We're going to read some from that tonight. And in fact, I'm at the whole story out from that document. So a lot of the stuff that happened after the 1946 era, 1970s and all the information, I'll gloss over it a little bit. But the majority of this story is going to come from the FBI documents that were just released. So, wow. What do you think? Uh, that is uh, probably a really interesting read. Like you said, like I, I would love to see how an FBI profiler or, you know, back in that day would view this case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And for all you, um, for all you kind of young listeners out there, you got to be careful because a lot of it is written like in this foreign language that it may be hard to decipher. It's called cursive handwriting. <laughs> Apparently they're going to bring that back in schools. I hope so. I like but, it. Uh, Stop teaching it. That is sad. So a lot of it's that, but a lot of, but most of it's typed. And like I said, a lot of it's just random communications and stuff like that. So it, when you see a thousand pages, don't, don't think you're going to be reading a thousand pages. Okay, so this is the Texas Phantom Killer. This inspired a movie that was actually remade twice. And I seen the recent version, 2014 movie of this. Oh. I didn't realize it was about this case, but I never seen the original movie, which I'm definitely want to watch it soon. It's the town that dreaded sundown. It's a very oh. interesting movie. And that picture you're looking at is the guy. Now, it says it's based on this story and that names are changed, but... It is. You could definitely tell it is this story because the town itself was frightened. If you want to read this right here to kind of understand how frightened the town was. Terror swept the town. Men began carrying guns wherever they went. Husbands sent their wives and children out of town to visit relatives. Lights burned all night long in every house. So this guy must have been really rampant then. Yeah, I mean, all right. So he only killed five people, maybe six, but that one... I think that one was a copycat. No, not a copycat. I don't think that one was related. Okay. In fact, I don't think the fifth one was related. Hmm. And keep in mind, I only looked at newspapers from 1946 and the FBI documents. That's all I looked at to do the story. So I don't really know. There might be other cases. But well, I not... did the I did look at the overview, and he's only credited for five murders and then severely wounding eight. So I mean, there's... I would trust what the FBI would call related well, th- no, to No, this is, yeah, but this is the FBI in the 1946. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. in the 70s, they have different, you know, they right, right, revisit right. the case or whatever. But so they released the documents from that year. That's what that is. This was in the spring of 1946. He murdered five people and severely injured eight. The media coined him the Phantom Slayer, the, moon, the Moonlight Phantom Killer, and a bunch of other kind of related names. All right, so let me talk about the first actual murder. So the the one that you just heard was not a murder. That was him ramping up. That was him trying to figure things out because three weeks later, he actually makes his first double homicide. All right, so that was February. Now we're going to March 24th, 1946. This is 8.30 or 9 in the morning. Now, this is March not 24th. That's tomorrow. Today. No. That the, a day of the day that we're releasing the episode. Oh. Yeah, that's today. So 
8.30 to 9 a.m. is not when the murder happened, but that's when the body was found. The bodies were found. Mm. You have Richard Griffin, a 29-year-old, and Polly Ann Moore, a 17-year-old. All right. He was driving a 1941 Oldsmobile. They were only dating for six weeks. Now, there were no fingerprints found in this particular murder. This is a murder I'm about to go through, and it's pretty gruesome because it was raining really bad. A passerby actually discovered their bodies in his Oldsmobile that morning around nine o'clock a.m. because they were in like lover's lane. It's not an actual lane. They were basically on the side of the road in the bush, right? But everyone kind of knows in the town, that's where you get the Humpty Dumpty from. But this <laughs> passerby just thought they had fallen asleep. You know, when you're, uh, you're in the bush, you're getting bush, and then you get tired, you fall asleep, you're just going to take a little nap, but then it's like nine in the morning. He goes, he knocks on the window. Hey, you know, I don't want you guys to get in trouble. So, you know, let's pack it up and go. But he sees... A very, very gruesome sight. This is from the Tyler Morning Telegraph, Monday, March 25th, 1946. I'm doing this for you, Nicole Supremo. There's a lot of papers I could have pulled from, but I'm pulling it from your hometown. Oh, thanks for joining, Nicole. Griffin's body was found in the front seat of his car and the girl's body was in the back seat. Griffin's pockets were turned inside out. As you're about to see, this couple was brutally murdered. Mm-mm. Richard Griffin was still inside the car, in the in the driver's seat, behind the wheel still. But Polly Ann Moore, she was in the back seat. She was spread out with her clothes on. But there was 20 feet from the car, a piece of earth, mm. the ground saturated with blood. Ugh. That's how detectives knew that. She actually was out of the car oh. when she was killed, and then she was put back in there. I don't know if he was trying to cover up the rape or whatever, you know. And we've done cases like that before where the autopsy, they don't even check for semen or sperm because the female had all the, the clothes on. Remember the Taco Bell Strangler? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had all their clothes on, so let's not even check for rape. But yeah. he just dressed them back up. So I don't know if that was that uh, type of thing or not. Yeah. There was blood all on the running boards of the car. The night of March 24th, Richard Griffin, 29, and Polly Ann Moore, 17, parked at this spot beside a lightly wooded area. Next morning, their bodies, fully clothed, were found sprawled in the rear seat of the car, each shot twice through the head. Griffin's pockets had been turned inside out. Twenty feet to the right of the car on the grass floor of the woodland was found a stain of blood. One of the victims, the officer deduced, had been taken from the car and slain in the woods, then carried back and placed in the car. The bodies were embalmed before an examination was made to determine whether a sex crime had been committed. Which I don't really get Why that. Why did they do that? I, yeah. I don't know, because honestly, I couldn't even tell in the FBI documents if they even linked this to the assault that happened, even though it was only three weeks later in this small ass town in Texarkana. You know, and, and you got some different jurisdictions, too. You know, you got you got the FBI, you got the Texas Rangers involved. You got all these, you know, local police. You got all this, like, confusion going on. The FBI actually comes 
in now after this murder. And if you read through the documents, they didn't even really want to. In fact, Hoover sent a message out that this is not even their jurisdiction. That came straight from him. Um, But eventually it became their jurisdiction from the next murder we're going to talk about. The evidence was really scarce because there's no fingerprints because it was very heavy rain. Both were shot in mm -hmm. the car, each shot once in the head. Now, this was execution style in the back of the head. So most likely what happened is he went to the driver's side window first, and you can't ask these because they're both dead, and then he immediately shot Griffin. Okay, so what you're reading now is a little snippet from the Kansas City Star Sunday, June 2nd, 1946. He had been a Texas Ranger 26 years, he said, and never in that time had been involved in so difficult a case in which so many murders had been committed with so, with so few clues. We have questioned more than 1,000 persons in this investigation, including 200 sex perverts, he told me. We've tried to narrow down the field of suspects, but all we know now is that the murderer is a man, not a woman. We don't know if he was white or black, tall or short, fat or slim. We do believe that he is a muscular man, a fellow with a good, strong grip. Also, it is known that he is a dead shot with a pistol and an expert with a rifle. Dead shot with a pistol. And he is, as you're going to see here in a second. Now, let me just show you the FBI file so you guys can actually see what they look like here. And you guys can kind of describe what I'm going through. I'm just going to scroll through them really quick. And you guys kind of tell the listeners kind of what you're seeing here, if you guys don't mind. I It's interesting that um, they aren't thinking he might be like a military or ex-military with the shooting. Mm. But then again, it is Texas. So they hunt a lot. That is a very, very, very good point. And there are a lot of suspects here. In fact... Half the time doing research in this case was going through all the damn suspects and half of them were from the military. Half of them were literally just got out of the military. You know, the war's over now. September 2nd, 1945 was the official end of World War II. So a lot of the enlisted men that were serving got out. I mean, all right. So I know how it is. You get out of war and a lot of them, a lot of the uh, soldiers become conscientious, conscientious objectors. You know, they're very pacifist with the war. And a lot of them are just really angry, Mm -hmm. you know, and want to take it out on society. I can say that from personal experience. Not that I'm angry, but I can I, I know that's what soldiers go through, that kind of shit. Like they they did all this. They had to kill all these people. Now they get back and and into civilian life and they mm-hmm. start thinking about it. Should I have done that? Should I have killed these people? Were they innocent? Yada, yada, yada. So they take it out on society. So you have an expert sh- marksman like this guy. So a lot of the suspects were military They ran about 100 damn fingerprints in the military base at the time just to try to find one that matched. They had they had one like partial fingerprint and and Mm -hmm. a palm print you'll see in this story. But so this is the um, I'm going to scroll through this right quick, just really quick. If you guys want to tell people kind of 
So it's very uh, well, hard to a, read. Yeah, it's written on a typewriter. Yeah. Um, there's clippings of newspapers. Yeah. Office memorandum. Yeah. Yeah. That's, this is yeah. That's yeah. So really this is cool. what you're going to see now. This is a thousand pages, and if you there's scroll, like notes written on it. There's pages like this, you know, that don't wow. have anything on them. Some numbers. Numbers. You know, th- this right here is a, a piece of evidence I'm going to tell you about here in a second. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's very, if you read this file, guys, don't think you're going to be reading a thousand pages of type. It's, it's very sporadic. A lot of it you can't even read, as I'll show you, like it's hard to read this stuff. Tire tread impressions. This is hard to and, read. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really cool to kind of see the communication back and forth between the agencies and especially cool to see Hoover writing uh, personal messages, you know, and sending them out to his uh, staff. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, so that's kind of what I base the story off of right there. Now, let me talk a little bit about the M.O. right quick. He was a lover lane killer, very similar to someone else. Do you guys know who that is? Mm. He was a forty-five caliber killer, also known as the blank of blank. He had it. He he claimed that his neighbor's dog. There you go. Son of Sam. Now, I I don't know why they haven't categorized this type of killer yet, because reading this story is very similar to Son of Sam, even though I don't I haven't really done his story yet. But he actually watches them kind of have sex in the car and then he goes and enforces his will on them. It's a different type of killer that has never been classified to my knowledge. Hmm. You know, they have like spree killers, serial killer, all this stuff, but they don't have this one very sub-niche type of killer that goes and watches a couple in the car and then kills them. Because, I mean, the son of Sam is also one. So, you know, there's got to be, there there should be a category for these type of people. But I don't think there is. Hmm. So he's a lover lane killer. He wears a white mask with holes cut out for eyes in the mouth. Most likely a pillowcase, but no one knows for sure. Now, he would basically point the pistol and a flashlight, which he actually dropped a flashlight, which became huge evidence in this case. Hmm. He would point the flashlight and the pistol to the window, order the couple out. Then he would proceed to kill the male first, like most serial killers do. They, If you're killing a couple, you want to kill the male first because that's the one that right. can overpower you, right? So in the first case that we did, is that the only one that had a survivor? Uh, no, but no, but yes, that's the one that I'm not sure reading all this, if he actually meant to let them live or not, because if he wanted to kill them, he would have shot them. So and the he other... had a pistol and I was thinking, well, maybe he didn't have any ammo in the pistol, but it was just know. for show because it was it, maybe just, it was just for show. But if he wanted to kill him, he would have shot him off the bat, but it was his first time. So He was going in, this is a new thing I'm doing, type of thing. Now, there's one other case where there was a survivor. Remember I said there's five killed, Mm -hmm. and he kills couples. So there's one that did survive. Honestly, and I'll get to that one in a second, I don't even know if that's directly related to this case, to be Mm -hmm. honest. He was a sexual sadist. Now, that's what the psychologist, psychiatrist said. 
Hollis said he warned officers at the time that the man was crazy and desperate and he would kill the next couple he attacked. Mrs. Larry, 19, said she was sure beyond any doubt that the man who attempted to criminally assault her here that night was the killer being sought by peace officers in one of the greatest manhunts in Southwest history. Mm. Hollis, 24, agreed. He said that the man who beat him so unmercifully was a sadist and crazy. We're going to April 13th, 1946. Okay, we're going to talk about Betty Jo Booker. She's 15 years old. She is the lead alto saxophone player. Oh, and she's actually wow. playing at the VWF club, which is like the veterans. Yeah. Right, for, yeah, foreign wars. Yeah, VFW. veterans of foreign war club or whatever. She's very talented. If you want to read this, Nicole... The night of April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, a pretty 15-year-old brunette, played her saxophone in a school orchestra which provided music for a young people's dance in Texarkana. She was a popular girl in town, known by almost everybody, at a dance recital once she had been named Little Miss Texarkana. Oh, wow, that's cool. That's from the Kansas City Star, Sunday, June 2nd, 1946. I'm going to tell you in a minute how talented she was at a 15-year-old. Okay, so at this night, this is April 13th, she's playing, as 15, she's playing this alto sax. She's the lead player for, you know, it's a civic um, event, it's for the veterans, but it's still a pretty big event. If you want to read this, Nicole. The night of April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, a pretty 15-year-old brunette, played her saxophone in a school orchestra, which provided music for our young people's dance in Texarkana. She was a popular girl in town, known by almost everybody. At a dance recital, she had once been named Little Miss Texarkana. Her boyfriend, Paul Martin, he's a 17-year-old. He shows up at the performance. They've been friends since kindergarten. Now, he shows up, and they do dance a little bit. I've seen in a couple of papers they're dancing and stuff like that, because that's the last time people actually seen them, right? Mm. Now, a little bit about Betty right quick. She's from a wealthy family, and so is Paul. She's very popular and She started dancing at a very, very early age. I'm talking about like two or three. And she actually picked up the saxophone when she was in her teenage years. And that's when she started performing at many civic functions. But she was also a singer. She was she's like the Lady Gaga. If you think now, like Lady Gaga is like extremely talented, you know, from from a a child. Yeah, she is. She's uh, so like her when when I think of uh, Betty Booker, I think of. A Lady Gaga. You guys know how this story is going to end with these, with this couple, right? I mean, they're they're going to go yeah. from the dance, from the VWF performance. They're going to go lovers lane into lovers lane. They're going to start making out and stuff like that. And then the same scenario plays over. The Phantom comes up with a flashlight and the gun, and this is what happens. After the young people's dance that night of April 13th, Betty Jo put her saxophone in the car of Paul Martin, 17, and the couple was seen driving off together at 2 o'clock in the morning. They went to Spring Lake Park and stopped. Mm. Spring Lake Park. Now, if you look at this picture right here, now I pulled this from the uh, TexarkanaDaily.com. This is the actual location they were. So as you see here, they were on South Robinson Road in Texarkana. Now, it's two in the morning, and the Phantom actually arrives. He's probably been there even before they got there, I'd imagine. 
He's kind of just like waiting for a victim. Yeah, he's just kind of waiting for them. From a top criminologist on this case, the FBI actually, you know, hired him to come in. He believes this is what happened. The uh, the Phantom Killer made Paul Martin start the engine and drive down a more secluded area from where they mm. were mm. previously. Because, you know, they could see the, the tracks of the car and stuff like Interesting, that. Interesting, though. He actually makes them drive down like this little, not even a path. It's not even a real path. But it leads into the railroad tracks. And oh. If you can see in this photo right here, you know, the railroad yep. tracks. Mm-hmm. On the north side of the park, the killer made Paul get out of the car. The boy put up a fight. The murderer shot him in the face. Blood stained the bushes on the south side of the road. Paul fled to the darkness. The killer brought him down with three accurate pistol shots, one to the base of the skull, one to the left shoulder, and one to the right hand. Paul fell on the north side of the road, about 50 feet from the point where he was first shot. What do you see from that paper right there? That's from the Kansas City Star, Sunday, June 2nd, 1946. A lot of words. Sharpshooter. Sharpshooter, right? So, yeah, exactly. Bloodstained bushes. So that's what I want you guys to understand. Like, number one, picture yourself, if you've ever fired a gun, how accurate you are standing still. Now you have a target that's moving at a fast rate of speed from the newspaper. It says the killer brought him down with three accurate pistol shots, one to the base of the skull. The head is the last target that you want to aim for if you're in the military, because that's the smallest area. You know what I'm saying? You want to aim for the body because you got more of a chance to hit them. So to aim and hit at the back of the skull, you have to be some somewhat of a sharpshooter one to the left shoulder and one to the right hand so i mean yeah that's kind of off but all all of his shots hit his target which was running if i can uh mm. you know uh, wow that's that even harder yeah so uh look at this this is the actual uh image this is the actual crime scene photo of paul that was uh killed right here go talk to see this oh that's actually the exact crime scene photo right there so you can see him laying down now you can't see the blood or anything but that's because the uh, bullet went through the back of his head and um so he's laying on the ground right there so paul is dead obviously now this is a second homicide well second couple homicide you know as we talked about so if you want to read this nicole the girl's high-heeled shoes made prints in the soft ground beside the tiny stream where she ran from the phantom Betty was actually found about a half a mile away from Paul. So you saw the uh, picture of Paul there. Mm. A half a mile down. Now, this is down Morris Lane. Here's what police think happened. The Phantom actually forced her out of the car and into the woods. That's where he raped her and shot her once to the heart and once to the head. Now, Mm. this is her photo right here. Oh, so that's her right there. That's the actual crime scene, and that's her uh, legs right there. So she was actually, you see those high hills? Mm-hmm. That's how she was running. From the FBI report, it says, quote, he put up a terrific struggle. So this makes me think that when the the first couple that kind of gave a somewhat detailed description of the uh, phantom, 5'8", maybe 5'6", you know, so when I see terrific struggle from this guy, 
he he's probably not six two or six three. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Right. Like he probably had a good chance of fighting this guy off. So they were either similar size. Exactly. Or... And that's gonna come into play too, because a lot of the suspects that they actually got fingerprints and stuff from were of six two, six three. I mean, these were mm-hmm. military kind of bred guys, right? So it makes me wonder why is a a guy that was smaller in stature targeted these I mean, guys I don't that know. Are I mean, think about it. That's a good question. Like an inferiority the, complex? No, or? but think about the Golden State Killer. If you look at him now, I mean, he's not a big guy. You know, actually, he was pretty... I think he's like 5'6 or something. Because you remember, like, when we did that story... He was a um, he was a pretty broad guy, but he was short and he had that you know micro penis. You guys remember that from that episode? Oh, I forgot. Oh, all yeah, the yeah. so he was not a big dude, you know that guy, the Golden State Killer. So mm. it makes me think that since he's not a big dude, he's worried about being overpowered by the boyfriends and stuff like that. Right. So if if you want to keep that in mind, because that that goes through his mind when he's doing this. He did rape Betty Jo and shot her once through the heart and once through the head. Okay. If you want to read this, Nicole. Martin's body was found lying in a thicket at the side of a lonely country road two miles north of here. He had been shot in the shoulder and head. The girl's body was found near a desolate country lane a mile and a half west. She had been shot in the face and the heart. Martin's body, lying against a hedge of honeysuckle, was found at 6 a.m. Sunday, six hours later, the body of Miss Booker was found alongside a road a mile away. The car, still containing the ignition key, was located a mile away in another direction. No gun Mm. was found. Interesting. Now, this is one of the first times that they actually found evidence at the scene. They found a black cord, what they call a wind cord, oh. from a man's hat. So, like, I'm thinking about those safari hats. Yes, with the, the bucket uh, hats. Yeah, the bucket hats with yeah. the, the string that comes down. Yeah, and I'm Nigel Thornberry. Yes, uh, Tim Curry. Know, that little, like, thing that you put, yeah. Press, yeah, the wind cord. press in and yeah. then you pull up uh-huh. and it tightens it. Yep. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. So they actually found that. And if you remember from earlier when we went through the FBI files, do you remember I showed you that little wind cord? Yes, but you yeah. didn't tell us what it was. That yeah, So that is the hat cord oh. that they found. So, and the reason I'm saying that is if you look through all these FBI files, a lot of it, I'm talking about like maybe 50 pages at least, are dedicated oh. to this wind cord here. And them, the FBI, reaching out to several different agencies Mostly in like New York that make those the hats, yeah. you know, mass produce the hats. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like the Steve Madden guys, you know, that make all Steve the clothing. Madden. Yeah, exactly. So half of the. You um, haven't seen Wolf of Wall Street. No, I haven't. Oh, God. You need to do that on your quarantine-cation. At Adam Hat Stores, Inc. 665 Broadway, New York, New York. Mr. Larry Listener, a buyer for that firm, also advised that the cord was originally attached to a gray or black felt hat with a black band. He then carefully arranged the cord around the crowns of a number of hats and said that it was his belief that the cord came off a large hat, probably seven and three eighths or seven and a half. Hmm. And I want to say the reason I'm putting this in there and you guys are reading it is because I thought it was pretty cool because this is actually from an FBI correspondent, right? Yeah. Yeah, So like, I I want you guys to understand the size of this dude's head. Yeah, They could try to find the suspect that way. I want you guys to really understand when I was doing this story, 
I, I approached it as the mindset of I'm only going to learn the facts of this case through the FBI documents mm-hmm. and sorting through these. So that is how I'm presenting this story now. I wonder if he used it for like if he got it from the hat and then if he maybe used it to fasten his pillowcase. That's actually a really good question, because where would the hat be if he's got a pillowcase over his head? But it was said by the immediate family that that didn't belong to either of the victims. So, you Hmm. know, who knows? It it seems like it would have to be his, you know? Yeah. But maybe not. Or maybe he used it to, like, tie their hands and then he, like, went to get it and then dropped it instead of taking it with him. Well, I I don't think he tied any of the hands because they didn't see any marks around the hands or anything like that literatures yeah but i you know i'm not sure now i want to say the fbi did do a very thorough case even though this wasn't completely solved even though we got a pretty reliable suspect if you will Hmm. but then again this is also 1946 so if the killer was an adult in 1946 he could still be alive He, he could be very old probably 90 yeah but he could still be alive yeah I mean, depending on, depending on how old he was, but he definitely could still be alive. You know, the Golden State Killers, you know, 80 maybe or 70, late 70 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he's older. Yeah, he's an old guy. Anyway, let me talk a little bit about the similarities between the cases. I mean, obviously, you guys know this is the same killer, but both cases use the same firearms. And if you read through the FBI documents, a lot of the memorandums and stuff are about the bullet casing getting tested. You know, as soon as they send it, they have to make a correspondence. Oh, did you get this? Then yes, I got this. So this is all part of the thousand pages, right? But it was a 32 caliber auto bearing rifle and it had a certain uh, type of groove. You know how every bullet that comes out has a certain signature depending on Mm -hmm. how the barrel was made. It was a six left. It was a Colt auto pistol. It has six lands and six grooves, which is how the barrel's made up with a counterclockwise twist. Okay. So it it was a very unique kind of signature of the bullet. So they knew it was from a Colt automatic pistol. Now, the town was actually terrified. If you watch the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown, you'll actually see. I mean, because it's pretty accurate on that. But I'll read a little bit from the Kansas City Star Sunday, June 2nd, 1946. Quote, the terror has been caused by a phantom killer who is still at large. He prowls the narrow tree-shaded lover's lanes that crisscross the flat land on the northwestern fringe of town. He struck at approximately blank intervals, the prowls, the narrow, tree-shaded lover's lane that crisscrossed the flat land on the northwestern fringe of town, and once he attacked at a modern farm home less than 10 miles away. In 11 weeks, he has killed three men by pistol or rifle shots to the head, two teenage girls by shots to the head, criminally assaulted a young woman, and attempted to kill two others. The passion of the phantom apparently is aroused only by the sight of couples making love. He has a struck only at times when a man and a woman were together, either on a lover's lane or in their own home. His method usually is to kill the man, criminally attack the woman, and then shoot her. Are there any pastors that are suspects or religious officials or people that are um, involved in the church that that are suspects? Because are you thinking because 
he was like approaching couples that were making out and making Pre-mail. love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I thought about that. Like maybe he was just really mad that the new, you know, the new age is doing that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying like the new kids are doing that. Yeah. And did, did the, were there any connection between the but, victims? But then he raped the girl. It's like, if he was like, oh, these fucking kids are making out and having sex, but then he goes and rapes the girl. It's yeah, like, but sometimes it could be like a rage thing. Like, oh, you like. To you teach dare, her a lesson. Type yeah. Of thing? Like you think that yeah, you can maybe. go do that or I don't know. Um, no, I mean, I, I understand that maybe. Or maybe were, were there connection between the victims? Were they from the same school? Um, no, not really. The the women were young. So the only connection really that I saw in this case was Lover's Lane. Mm-hmm. But that's going to be the same demographic. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to have a 40 year old. No. And his 50 year old wife no, go down there. You no, because I was asking because yeah. maybe the. Maybe the killer was like a teen that was jilted mm. by like these girls or something. But. A teen, uh, maybe, but I mean, keep in mind mm. that he was that sharpshooter. So, right. So, unless, probably not. Yeah, probably not. I mean, honestly, in my mind, because I know how hard it is to shoot someone in the head, especially if they're moving around like that. In and the back all, of the head, too. Exactly. So, all of his shots, and you'll see in a minute, were extremely accurate. I can't see a kid doing it unless. Yeah. That you know, he grew up hunting every day. You know, maybe. Yeah. I don't know, man. Because I, I don't know. I, I'll I'll show you in a minute. But anyway, so right now I'm kind of sidetracking a little bit. We're talking about basically how the town was terrified. And remember, I said they made a movie out of this because the town was so terrified. And um, this is a really interesting paper that I read. This is from the Fort Worth Star Telegram, Tuesday, April sixteenth, nineteen forty six. And the reason this is interesting is because the news writer here, the reporter, actually goes on one of the missions of the local police. And the mission is to go out and be incognito at these lover lanes, you know, and kind of be in the bushes, Mm. you know, way and kind of lights off type of stuff and try to catch the phantom killer. Right. So this reporter actually goes on Mm. the the road with a Texas Ranger because the Texas Rangers were involved at this point. Mm -hmm. And he was scared shitless. A couple of things that I didn't put in this article was one, he said something like um, along the lines of, we didn't find a phantom killer that night, but actually I'm really glad we didn't. And, you know, he kind of hmm. wrote it in the words of, holy shit, I'm terrified. Wow. Even though this sheriff right here, Texas Ranger, has a fully loaded shotgun, you know, and a submachine gun. Right. I'm still terrified of this phantom. So even the reporter with the freaking Texas Ranger is terrified. I registered at a hotel named The Grim. The first man I met was named Graves. It was a weird assignment. The waitress who served me in the hotel coffee shop offered the first conversation in Texarkana. Her name was Mrs. Robert C. Houston. I asked her if people locked their doors at night nowadays. You bet they do, she said, and they put a chair up against the door, too. People pretty jittery, eh? They have got good reason to be jittery, she said. Why, you know my husband is a special delivery mail carrier. A couple weeks ago, he had to go out and deliver a lever at 9 o'clock at night. He went up to the door and knocked. From set, from the inside, he heard a woman yelling, Shoot him through the door! Shoot him through the door now, Charlie! 
if you read this, like, it's kind of weird, right? Because what's the MO so far? Lover's Lane. Lover's Lane. He's killing couples. Why is the entire town scared? It's mainly because of the news media. The, all the newspapers I kind of went through said the Phantom Slayer and the Moonlight Phantom Slayer. And like, it seems also, like he's like, going to come like ghost up, you know, and appear at your door yeah. and take you away like the Grim Reaper. That's kind of how the media portrayed it. Well, so he's only appearing at night, though. So he's got this great marketing behind him. But at the same time, it's like... You know, these waitresses that don't go to Lover's Lane or whatever are these men, you know, they're f- scared to death of a guy that's only killing like teenagers in the Lover's Lane. You know, it's crazy how like the public perception is with the media, you know? Yeah. So the murders that did happen were in a pretty short period. Obviously, exactly. They're, they're Three to four weeks. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's like all the other stories we did. You know how the... Uh, FBI always claims that there's this kind of a increase, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the first kill, maybe if you're a serial killer, the first time you kill is one year and then you wait a year. But then the next time you only wait six months, then you wait three months. You kind of get more quicker. So mm-hmm. does the FBI think that there was a reason why they stopped? I don't know, actually. That's a very good question, because. The reason this case is so compelling is because he did stop, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe he moved to another county or state rather. But he stopped using the mask and stuff, you know, and maybe he advanced, you know, who knows? So no one knows where he went. So this is the first report of this killer is in Texas. Like he he didn't come from somewhere else, right? Yeah, he most likely came from Texas if he wasn't in the military and then you know, he he lived in Texas for a while and then he got shipped to the military for 10 years or whatever. And now he's back in his mm-hmm. hometown. But the reason this case is so compelling is because he stopped abruptly. But that may be because the Texas Rangers got involved. And usually the Texas Rangers, especially the guy that was behind this case, which was notorious. I mean, he, this guy, the Texas Ranger that is actually in charge of this case, has... Eight bullets, half of them are still in his body from duels. I mean, this is the 1940s. So when he got those were like the 1900s, he was dueling with people, you know, and and one report I read, this Texas Ranger has a buckshot still in the back, still in his back. Oh, my God. He's never gotten removed. So he's like a notorious figure. So once the what I'm trying to say is once the Texas Rangers were like, we're here. You know, we're going to catch you. It's kind of funny that the guy kind of just calmed down a lot because we don't you don't really see that in these killings. You know, these serial killers, they don't really stop, do they? Mm. You know, anyway. Did any of the suspects die? Not around the time that it stopped, but they're pretty much all dead now. Like I said, there's a lot of suspects. So you said that there was something that came out about this pretty recently. What came out about this case? No, 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 no. The, what I said just came out about this case is that they released all the FBI files oh. from the case. There's no new evidence or oh, gotcha. there's no new breakthroughs. It's just that it's past 
you know, uh, the statute uh, of limitations. No, not even that. No, it's no, past no. a certain year where none of the family members will be affected. None of the suspects in there. They're all old and probably dead by now. They're it's not going to open... be affected. You know what I'm saying? No one's going to get put in prison or anything else. Like, it's 1946. They went ahead and released all the records. It's not that they're thinking it's going to be solved. Yeah, and even if it is solved, you know, honestly, the guy's probably dead. Right. It's like if we saw the Zodiac killer case, you know, who cares? I mean, the guy is probably dead anyway. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of the the feeling I kind of have from it. But now let's talk about the third murder, which from the FBI documents that I read and keep in mind, I only read these and newspapers from 1946. I couldn't actually see a linkage between this specific murder and the rest of his M.O., but I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys what happened. We're going to 9.15 p.m. This is May 3rd. This is three weeks after. Not even. Now, this is the next murder, but I'm not 100% sure that this is even linked, but this did happen, and this is attributed to the Phantom Slayer. 9.15 May 3rd, 1954 an older man named Virgil Stark. He is sitting in his easy boy, what's the easy boy? Lazy boy. Lazy boy chair, and he's reading something. You know, the price is right, just went off, freaking Jeopardy. I can't, who can follow that shit anyway? You know, that just went off, so he's reading in his chair, and all of a sudden, two shots fire through the window directly behind him. Oof. This time, the scene was across state lines in Arkansas, 10 miles northeast of the area in which other crimes occurred. Investigators believe that the phantom stood outside a window of the white Mrs. Virgil Starks the night of May 3rd and watched Mrs. Starks disrobe in the bedroom. Virgil Starks, 36 years old, a progressive popular farmer in the vicinity, sat in a chair in the living room listening to the radio, his back to the window, through which the Phantom was watching. I cannot see the linkage here. I honestly cannot. Number other, one, he used a completely different weapon. Yeah, other than the fact that he was shot in the back of the head. Exactly. It was very well-placed shots, but he used a completely different weapon. And the M.O. is completely different because he's not... In Lover's Lane with an easy target. Like, it seems like he had a personal vendetta against Virgil Starks. So Virgil Starks, 36 years old, he was a farmer, okay? And he shot twice to the back uh, of the head, and this is through the window. He'd have to, like, go up to the... Well, I mean, if you're that good of a shot, I guess you don't have to get that close, but, like, you'd still have to enter the property and, like, go up to the house and... To see that he was sitting there with his back to the window. Mrs. Starks came in and put an electric pad against the back of his chair. She returned to the bedroom and lay down on the bed. The Phantom shot twice with the twenty-two rifle, his two shots a single hole in the glass of the window. Virgil Starks hit twice in the back of the head, stood up. His wife, hearing the sounds, ran to the room and saw her husband sink back into the chair. She ran to him and lifted his head. Then she hurried to a wall telephone and lifted the receiver to call the police. The phantom shot twice again. Both bullets struck Mrs. Stark in the face. She dropped the receiver, reeled into the bedroom, and then to the kitchen. But the kitchen, she heard the phantom breaking in through the window. Oh. 
All right, look at this picture right here, guys. This is the uh, bullet shots through the glass. You see them right wow. there? Wow. If you look at this photo right here, this is the window. You can imagine his Easy Boy chair right around here. And those shots are pretty accurate through there. Yeah. So they said there are four shots, but it looks like there's only two holes. I mean, so he's pretty accurate with that shot. I, want, I just want to point that out because that's, to me, that's a big thing. Yeah. So did she also see the man with a pillowcase over his head type deal? Yeah, so she did. And she actually survived this murder. Now, her husband did not. Okay. Hmm. It's actually really crazy that she did survive because she was actually shot twice in the face. Ooh. Her husband was shot in the head. He was reading on his easy chair. She actually runs to the phone to try to call the sheriff. And she was shot once in the nose and it actually broke her nose, you know, the bones yeah. and ricocheted the bullet. They actually pulled the bullet for the wall Ooh. that had ricocheted off her nose. I mean, it still like went in there and broke everything, but, you know, heavy bone could ricochet. So that's what that did. And then she was shot again in the head and she still survived. She survived all this. Wow. And luckily she thought immediately, I got to get the hell out of here. She just started running and she did make it to a neighbor's wow. house because the reason I say that is because the killer actually returned to the home. So if she would have stayed there and kind of like died on the floor and moaned and groaned, she would have been killed. Wow. Because this killer was not going to let anyone, you know, that may have witnessed him live. The killer returns. The killer broke into the Starks' home, discovered the woman had fled, walked into the living room, looked at the body of Virgil Starks in the chair, walked back into the kitchen, and made the bloody footprint on the kitchen linoleum. He left the contents of the house unmolested, including the money and the jewels and the pocketbook of Mrs. Starks on the bed. Well, that's different than his other M.O. Like, he mm. was robbing at the lover's lane. So you're... Sounds like to me it was personal. That's what I'm saying, man. I don't know. If or he no longer cared about the money. But did they try to get a pic? Did they get any picture of his footprints? Could they look at they that? Did, yeah, that's a good question. So they did get a uh, footprint. Yeah, because he was walking through blood and he came back into the kitchen. That's where they got the footprint on the linoleum. So if you want to read this, this is actually from the FBI files right here. Mrs. Virgil Stark, his wife, was in the other room at the time, and upon hearing his body fall, entered the room and immediately started to telephone for help. While standing at the phone, she also was fired upon and received two wounds, one bullet passing completely through her the nose mm. and the other breaking her jaw, with latter bullet lodging under tongue. Oh. She will recover. She got shot twice in the face. Can you imagine that? Nope. And she still uh -uh. lived. Uh -uh. I mean, what the hell? Are you serious? One of the bullets reflected off of her nose. The other one destroyed her jaw and she still lived in, if I, you know, whatever. That is incredibly amazing. The evidence that they found at that scene, this is one of the big things that they actually pushed in the newspaper articles and stuff like that. It was this two-celled flashlight right here. Ooh. So this was at the spot that the killer fired and the reason the reason they know that that's where he stood because he was outside the house right mm -hmm. you guys understand that yeah with a rifle so it's not a pistol like it was from the lover's lanes this right. is a 22 rifle so different weapon uh -huh. but he was standing out 
shot through the window and they could see his foot, you know, his, uh, you know how the grass kind of bends over if you stand in it too long kind of shit. They could see the impressions right there. And right at the, those impressions were was this flashlight right mm. here. Now, they did pull fingerprints from all of this stuff. Keep in mind. But they've never found an exact wow. match. Interesting. Yet. But honestly, I don't really believe that this murder is related. Maybe that's just me. But just reading the FBI documents, I just... I. Don't see how they ever link this. It is completely well, different. Well, I mean, if he still had the pillowcase over his head. I mean, that would explain why they, well, the I, fingerprints didn't match any of the suspects if, from the flashlight if it wasn't related. This is where they got one palm print from the evidence. Now, it was also surmised that it was a a uh, Colt Woodman automatic because he had a twenty two cartridge casing that was found that fit that type of gun. So let me talk about the the prime prime suspect that everyone thinks it is. His name is UL U Y O U E L L Lee Swaney Swinney. Okay, now this is from the FBI offices right here. If you want to read this. J. Edgar Hoover, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Dear sir, I sent to your department several days ago a tan shirt to be examined in your laboratory. Oh. This shirt contained in the collar of the deceased, the the Deerfield recording. Mark oh, sorry, it's blocked out. Is basically saying that the the a piece of clothing that they detained from the suspect had the letters Stark. Like the last murder, Virgil Stark, which they oh. believe is connected, written like in the in the uh, tag area. Oh, can you determine about the length of the time this mark has been in the shirt? If so, please advise by Western Union at once. Thanking you for your cooperation, I remain yours very tr- very truly yours, W. E. Davis Sheriff. I thought it was kind of cool that this is actually from the FBI documents. I thought you guys would think it's kind of cool yeah. too. Yeah. All right, so this is from the wife of Sweeney right here. Read where it says read where it says that uh, she had been with him during the murder. Told by Sheriff Davis of Texarkana, Arkansas, that she had been with Eulalie Sweeney when he had killed James Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker on April 14, 46. A signed statement was taken this afternoon from Miss Sweeney in Something agents of the Office of Texarkana by the county attorney and sheriff of Texarkana, Arkansas, and she stated in substance as follows, that they had had a few beers in Texarkana and had driven to the Lover's Lane Park after midnight on April 14, 46, and had parked their car approximately 200 feet past Martin's automobile and had walked back to his car. Her husband had thirty-two automatic in one hand and a glove in the other. They took the boy and girl out of the car and made them get in in their car, which was stolen Plymouth sedan, and drove them approximately one-fourth mile from the automobile when Swinney had made Martin get out of the car and climb over into the fence and climb over the fence after which he got sh- after which he shot him twice. Mrs. Swinney held the girl in the car. Swinney returned and they drove down the road and turned around when they came past the spot where Martin had been shot. 
They observed him staggering down the road, whereupon Swinney stopped the car and went up to where Martin was standing and shot him again. They then proceeded down the road, driving first up one side, then another, and stopped, whereupon Swinney made his wife leave the car for approximately 30 minutes, and he raped Betty Jo Booker. So they think the wife is in on this. So the wife actually blamed everything on the husband. Now, she later recanted her story, saying that the detectives kind of pressured her. But apparently everyone thinks it's him. I mean, we've seen a lot of false confessions here. So I could see them trying to make something fit and pressure a lady into saying something. Like, what other evidence is there other than the uh, potential false confession? Which I get, a confession seems pretty enticing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... Honestly, I don't even think that murder is even related. So that's about like what I have from the FBI documents. Like mm-hmm. I said, I only kind of read from those in the newspapers. Now, there was some pretty significant events that happened that I'm not going to get into, really. Like, for instance, one that they had a suspect that they hypnotized what? and he confessed. One of the theories was it was a prisoner of war from Germany. Another theory was it was an Army Air Force gunman. I mean, there was a false confession, including actually someone that said it's probably Jack the Ripper that's doing this. Well, that's a false confession if I heard one. But honestly, I can't really tell you because no one's ever confessed or anything. So from the 1946 release of the FBI files and from the newspapers of that year, that's kind of what I got. One of the really interesting things I want to throw in there right quick is that Since this was a Texas Ranger type of case, the Texas Rangers actually recruited their own sons Hmm. and gave them some, you know, hunting hunting rifles to go out and kind of, you know, be a stakeout for the Phantom Killer. But like I said, the Phantom Killer probably got scared shitless once he read the papers and was like, oh, fuck, the Texas Rangers and the FBI's involved. Uh, Maybe I should like cool my jets or even go somewhere else, yep. which, you know, we could have, have, you know, I, I saw one case where he may have been the uh, new lover's lane killer there in California mm. at the time. Who knows? Mm. But I mean, as far as the files that I went through, that's kind of what I got from the case. He's a lover's lane killer and he, he may be a sadist. He maybe watched the couple have relations in the car and then, yeah, he takes his aggression out. So that's what I got. He's never been caught. So if you want to read those files, the FBI has them. You just have to have a top security clearance. You just have to go. You just have to go to the FBI website. <laughs> but or go to talkmurder.com. Or go to talkmurder.com. Not that. So no. that's all I got. Unless you guys got any questions, but. I want to go to bed, so I hope you guys don't have any questions. No, I'm good. All right. So, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button on whatever podcasting app you use. If you like this story, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you're absolutely obsessed with this podcast and want to become our phantom, go to talkmurder.com slash join. Become a Talkers Primo. Get a badass t-shirt, sticker, swag, a lot of love. Shout it out all over the place. Tell me what story you want me to do. I'll dedicate it, and I'll damn... Send it to you, baby. My name is John here with Jen and Nicole. And until next time, good night, you lovely, lovely people.
know they really need to just also spend more time on penmanship anyway. Some of these students, like chicken scratch. With printing. Well, no one you needs can't. it. You got the computers. That's the point of computers. You don't need to write anything down ever. No, you don't. No. You, when, when's the last time you wrote damn anything besides them wedding invitations? I write a lot of things down. Same. Yeah. You, you sign write, your name. You write them down on the freaking computer. No, I still That's what the damn I have computer's a legal for. Pad. I use Oh, a legal you're just going to kill notes. all them damn trees. We're going through all this COVID-19 bullshit and you're just killing trees. Thanks a lot, That's- Nicole. Unrelated. The trees are already dead once you buy the paper. Yeah.